RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Wednesday morning is our Legal Hub morning here at Reality Check Radio. Always look forward to this feature. And uh, Nick Kearney, our regular, joins us. Uh, no Katie Ashby-Cobbins this morning. Hi, Nick. Thanks for coming in. Morning, Paul. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And special guest, Tudor Klee, named Lawyer of the Year by Lawful Magazine in 2022 for his advocacy against MIQ. And uh, he is with us. Tudor, thanks for coming on our program. Great to have you. Welcome. Thank you very much, Paul. Nice to be here. Okay, and I look forward to uh, drilling down into some of the work you've been doing that uh, has uh, is well known and uh, I guess resulted in that um, Lawyer of the Year. It's like the Oscars, is it, of, of law in New Zealand, kind of like that? <laughs> so so some, something like that. But, uh, yeah, similar level of acting, I think, in some regards. But um, Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll get to that shortly. First up, though, Nick, um, people are buzzing at the moment with this uh, decision about fluoride, High Court finds Ashley Bloomfield's fluoride directive unlawful. What's happened here? Right, so a High Court decision that came out literally just uh, days ago on the 10th of November, um, it was uh, a decision for, uh, well, it was a a case involving judicial review um, taken by uh, an incorporated society called uh, New, New Health uh, New Zealand Incorporated. They took action against the Director General of Health, um, Ashley Bloomfield, uh, and also, um, well, because he was the person at the time that um, that made the uh, the decision. Even though he's now left uh, the the position, but yeah, took action against him and also against uh, the Attorney uh, General, as you're obliged to do when you're suing uh, a government. Um, entity, I suppose, or the government itself. So, and and the judicial review um, is summarised quite nicely um, early on in the decision as this: that um, that the Bill of Rights imposes a constraint uh, on um, Dr. Bloomfield before he made the directions to order. I think it was fourteen uh, councils. Uh, local authorities to uh, fluid, uh, fluid, <laughs> fluidate fluidate uh, their water, and the the plaintiff, which is the uh, this incorporated society of New Health New Zealand, said that before he made that decision and ordered these councils to um, put fluoride in their water, he was required to turn his mind to uh, and be satisfied that the directions he made were a reasonable limit on the right. To refu- for people to refuse uh, medical treatment, which is contained, of course, in, in the Bill of Rights. Um, and they say that the uh, that Dr. Bloomfield failed to turn his mind uh, to whether the directions or his directions were a reasonable limit on the right to refuse medical treatment. And by failing to turn his mind uh, as such, he made an error of law. Um, and therefore that era of law uh, is able to be reviewed. And they asked for the decision to be reversed on that basis. Um, the interesting thing about this is that it is the first time that this particular legal issue in regards to the Bill of Rights has reached a court, and you'd think the Bill of Rights came in in, I think, 1986 or 87 or something around there, 84 maybe, mid-80s anyway, uh, and it's the first time that a judicial review has been um, uh, taken to court for uh, an executive decision uh, of this nature for someone you know in, not in um mostly 
bill of rights actions are taken against the police perhaps or against customs or you know in terms of the actual uh, breach of, of perhaps habeas corpus or uh, a prisoner's you know breach in terms of um, some of the criminal element uh, un unlawful search and seizure things like that this was a decision by a um, I guess a government operative, if you want to call him that, the Director General of Health, and they're saying that he was required in acting in his capacity as a state uh, actor uh, to uh, turn his mind as to whether the decision to compulsorily require fluoride in water was uh, a justified limitation of the right uh, of people in, that ha they have in the Bill of Rights to refuse medical treatment. Now, importantly, as we discussed on the show before, our Bill of Rights is unlike the American Bill of Rights, you know, which is uh, stands supreme above any other law. Ours does not. Um, ours says, well, these are your rights, but if the um, if these rights can be limited, um, um, and, and but the limitation can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, then then that is that is fine uh, by by us, and so therefore the, the the right can be watered down and not held to be you know available, I suppose. Um, so what what this corporate society was saying here was that um, not not that in fact the decision by Dr. Bloomfield uh, was not a uh, justifiable limitation. In fact, they they said they argued that. He never even turned his mind to it, and he was required as a state actor to turn his mind to whether that was a justified limitation or not, and he never did it. Um, and so, uh, long story short, um, uh, you know, as I say, the decision only came out four days ago. The High Court uh, agreed with the society, and they allowed the judicial review and said basically that yes, Dr. Bloomfield was required to turn his mind. To um, to weather, uh, and probably take legal advice, which he never took. But he was required to turn his mind uh, as to whether that um, decision to require uh, fluoride in those in the drinking water of those fourteen councils um, that was a justified limitation on people's right to refuse medical treatment, and never turn his mind to it. And the decision was overturned. Someone must have advised him to take that course of action. You would think. Uh, no, um, look, I don't know. Um, oh, he's a doctor. Well, well, yes, but not the, even the, a very good one. Look what he did to the country, but that's well, another story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you say that, Paul, but uh, not me. <laughs> I have no comment on that. But look, I mean, the the thing about um, whether he took advice on it or not, we, we possibly I haven't read the decision uh, in detail. It's it's forty odd pages, and I only saw it this morning, but or last night. But um, as Tudor will probably, you know, confirm uh, the, the advice that people like him get from. Um, Crown law is privileged uh, anyway, and it's very unlikely to have been disclosed um, to to the plaintiffs here because of that um, because of that reason. Um, we should know about that, shouldn't we? I mean, because what they were doing is they were force medicating through, or what they're proposing, the water supply. They had a fine of two hundred thousand dollars if he didn't do it, and ten thousand a day for every day he didn't do it. So it wasn't just nudge nudge; it was a serious push yeah um uh, you saying we should have known what the advice was that he received i think so i think so well i, I mean you're opening up some pretty big um doors there to say that that the legal advice that 
that he received should be available to to the public at large and that the Crown should waive its privilege. privilege. But when it comes to the Bill of Rights, how can we be confident that anyone has our interests at heart when it's so, it looks like, it, it, at surface level, that it you know it's just brushed over? Oh, well, don't worry about that, you know. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the, the wider issue, you know, as I uh, allude to, it's it's not, this is, uh, although this was a case on uh, on fluoride, uh, of course, the um, the principle um, that that the director general should have turned his mind to um, whether it was a justified limitation on people's right to refuse medical treatment um, extends much more widely now than just just fluoride. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, e- each of these medical decisions um, are independent and they they're on a case by case basis, I suppose. So, I think you can't. I don't think it's been unfair to say, you know. Um, blankly, all advice that the, that the Crown gives to the Director General in respect of all of these type of medical matters should be made public. Um, there's probably good reasons why some of them shouldn't be. Um, but, you know, interest, perhaps, you know, um, of course, the an- analogy we can draw here is when uh, whether the decision to require, you know, uh, mandated vaccines should have been a decision. Did, did he t- t- then turn his mind to whether that was, uh, you know... This is my um, point. There's yeah, form. Uh, ex- the, the, exactly, exactly. He's got form um, here. And, and look, um, some of those decisions for the mandates have been overturned by the courts themselves as, as um, unlawful anyway. Um, but then you have to go... Th- this decision here goes one step uh, back from that, uh, and it says actually before he even made that decision, he was required to turn his mind to a, a different set of factors he never did. So look, it, it opens up a bit, of potentially a bit of floodgates, and to someone like you know someone like Tudor might have a bit of fun with something like this. Does that mean that um, that this decision can be taken again, and whoever, because I don't think it's him now, whoever it is now can say, "Yep, I took that into account, but I still don't think it really, you know, gets in the way." So tick, and and it's kind of done again. Yeah, that's what it means. Uh, it means that, sorry, um, uh, Director General, you are, are required to turn your mind to this particular matter. So then the the issue gets put in front of him again of fluoridizing, uh, fluoridizing. God, I have trouble with that word. Uh, fluoridating. Um, You've had too much of it. That's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe I have. Uh, fluoridizing. Uh, you know, the water supply of fourteen councils. You are required to make that decision again, having considered this uh, limitation on people's rights in the Bill of Rights Act. Please make your decision again. Uh, he goes away and makes it again after considering that particular um, that particular right and whether it's a justified limitation on it. And he could come to the same or she could come, the new Director General, whoever that is, could come to the same decision um, after after considering that, um, that justified limitation. Well, they don't have any evidence to base it on. I know that because we've sort of deep dived into that. Nothing of uh, any significance anyway. And there's that toxicology report out of the US that shows a um, definable drop in IQ from from pregnant women drinking water and uh, the effect on their kids. So anyway, just saying. So yeah. let's see what happens. Interesting situation. Well, look, and just just one more little bit. And, you know, I've, um, I've spoken about this little particular um, thing that is creeping into our law. Uh, What's well, not creeping is actually uh, coming in in a bit of a tidal wave at the minute. But, um, but paragraph 39, Paul, you're like this. Uh, the Crown agrees that tikanga values or principles may be relevant to a Section 5 analysis in some cases, depending on the issue. If analysis identifies its relevance and if inf- information about the relevant tikanga consideration 
is obtained from an appropriately authoritative source. Okay. Um, so uh, section five is an analysis of whether the right was justified, you know, the limitation of the right was justified in the circumstances. Well, now, uh, you know, this what that particular sentence basically says is that our Bill of Rights um, jurisprudence might change into the future markedly because uh, they, you know, the, the the limitation of the right <laughs> might have to consider tikanga values. Yeah, oh, but tikanga might be don't screw with our water, buddy, and that's okay. Yeah, well, I mean, it, this could look. I mean, Maori um, could actually say, yeah, it, it is actually tikanga not to put fluoride in the water, and that would that would probably help us all. Yeah, it probably would. Yeah. Okay, Tudor, listening to that, I know you're not kind of across it to any sort of depth, but um, what do you make of what you just heard? Well, I think the first thing is you cannot make the assumption that Dr. Bloomfeld was given any legal advice about rights in the first place. And I think that the, the, the assumption that Crown Law has has briefed him is, is plainly wrong. And I think that the basis for that is what we saw through the entire COVID response, where yeah. These, the, the decisions that were being made through most of the response, particularly on the border, which is what I specialized on, um, didn't have any legal advice on rights. It was actually interesting that after it, it, it was only after I'd sued the government the first time for banning pregnant uh, women's husbands from coming in to support them, that there's an email I obtained through OIA with a senior MB staff indicated that they had never heard of the UN Convention on the Rights of a Child, and even express amazement that there was a part of it that suggested that children were allowed access to both their parents. What? <laughs> and, and, and and what's incredible, and this was after they'd already been sued, they then said, and these are the seat, we're talking level three, level four the top people in MB, you know, who are paid, I think, probably $200,000, $250,000 band, where they indicate this amazement at it. They then state that if they do not do exactly what um, Dr. Blumfeld was required to do, which is to consider those rights, then they would effectively be acting unlawfully. So they state, we need to immediately do something about this before Tudor sues us again. And then they realize that if they, in fact, took into account this, um, the rights of a child, that they'd have to let these pregnant women in and, and the husbands. So they then said, why don't we just leave it and wait and see what happens? And that was in November 2021. So they they knowingly ignored it, even though, as you can see in this decision, you actually can't do that. And the next time the rights of a child came up was actually on January 30th, the next year, which was the day that Charlotte Bellis went public. Yeah. And as you can imagine, they wrote to Chris Hipkins and said, we have urgently included consideration of UN rights of a child today. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sudden thing. So the point, though, is, is that we're talking the first mention of rights of a child was November 2021, which means for over a year, the border had been closed and no one had ever suggested to the decision makers and MP that there were actually human rights considerations. I, I find that stunning to hear because it's not professional for a start, is it? No, it, and it's actually incredibly dangerous. And what makes it so interesting is the in response to the court filing, which was about a, a high-risk pregnant woman who was, I think she was 40 years old, first pregnancy, totally unexpected. She had serious, um, all sorts of horrific um, 
medical conditions and problems and everything. It was very grim reading seven medical reports about her situation. And they decided that she should be forced to give birth alone during the Auckland lockdown. God. And, and uh, I, yes. And, and this was how I got involved as I, it was a friend of mine from university. I wrote a simple letter, assuming that this was a mistake, just saying, look, obviously you're not aware. Dr. Uh, sorry. Um, Sir Peter Glackman, who's the most prominent um, pediatrician in New Zealand history, um, had just written a report that the safety of mothers um, during that pregnancy had an impact on not only their life, but the mental and physical development of that child for the rest of their life. So it's actually a big deal. And can you believe it? Um, The Beehive had announced in July 2021 that based on his research, they were changing the entire way we treat pregnant women in New Zealand on the Beehive website. And yet when it came to saying he actually wrote openly that it was it was unethical in every single case to force these women to give birth alone, the response at court was the science isn't black and white. No, here we go. So so we went from being a beehive announcement about how our, our greatest scientist has done all of this. They, I think they spent $100 million implementing all of his new recommendations. But when it came to actually letting um, helping these women – um, essentially, it was um, it was not black and white anymore. So, the, the, so, the, so the, to pull all that together, so you can understand how harmful it was. In response to that woman trying to get her husband back, when they declined um, my letter, where I pointed this out, the three words that I think are most important, and I just put this on my LinkedIn this week, they said the decision to ban her husband was lawful, fair, and rational. Oh. Okay. And they use these three words in all of the pregnancy cases. And, and just so you get an idea, they, they blew $42,000 of taxpayer money fighting to keep that husband out to force that 40-year-old high-risk pregnant woman to give birth on her own and lost. And they subsequently blew another, and this is all OAA numbers, another $60,000 trying to ban pregnant women, New Zealand citizens, I should say, coming back to give birth. But the line they always used was lawful, fair, and rational. They, they seem to come up with these lines, don't they? These words. I mean, yes. safe and effective is another one we all know. Um, mm, so, and that yeah. becomes a, like a mantra. Yes. And and the thing was, and again, when, when we're looking at, at what advice they were given, we have to remember that the people that were making these decisions, which it's not even like Dr. Bloomfield, who at least has some sort of qualification. I'm not sure what. You would um, think. You, yeah, you would hope so. Um, and 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 he's making these decisions about um, a medical treatment. We have to remember that the people who are making the decisions to to enforce this baby ban, none of them had a medical qualification, not a single one of them. And the people who actually signed off, so you had the low level people, which I found on LinkedIn. One was a Zumba teacher; that was her main job, and now she was making obstetric decisions, right. overriding the views. Oh, yeah. Overriding the this views of medical professionals. This is crazy to hear, man. This is crazy to hear. But carry yep. on. Yeah. So, the, so, and it's accepted that there was never a single person with a medical qualification at any level dealing with the pregnancy applications. That That's not a, a dispute. But the concerning thing then is the people signing off those, the baby band, because it went through the first level, the second level, and then the top level person was Megan Main, who is, uh, a, I'm sure, a successful businesswoman, but she's not a doctor. She was the one that suggested um, that pregnant woman should just call an ambulance if she needs help at home. So presumably, if you need someone to build the crib, you call an ambulance yeah, was her suggestion. Yeah. yeah. Um, the and then somehow we ended up with Brigadier Rose King, 
making obstetric decisions and deciding whether it was safe for someone to give birth overseas. And you think, again, how, how did we get to a point that the military was making obstetric decisions and banning pregnant New Zealand citizens? And, you know, no one even seemed to notice, let alone care. And that's what I was doing in court was fighting that. I mean, that sort of blows your mind to hear that. That is so, like, out there. Um, how can we explain this? Because surely these people, many of them, will be parents, so they kind of understand the child-parent connection, sort of. Um, um, it's pretty obvious, you know, what 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 is right and wrong at a fundamental level. And, I mean, I could think of all these things. How, how do we explain this? Look, that's a really good point, actually. I would say of the if we take out just uh, just said Ardern and Chris Hipkins, if you take those those two out and you just deal with the bureaucrats, of the people who were banning these pregnant women and leaving them, and just so we understand, this isn't about you know women in in, in easy situations. No. We're talking about women. Uh, we had one who was about to be forced to have a medical procedure that could have permanently blinded the fetus and then subsequently been imprisoned. She was re- she was rejected. We had one about to give birth in a country where the maternal death rate is 100 times that of New Zealand. She was rejected. We got her on the plane on the last day she could fly. Um, we had one, and we'll go into the Takanga thing in a moment, who was getting the shit beaten out. Of, oh, sorry, I'm not sure. Can I say that on your no, radio you station? That, but, she yeah. was getting the shit beaten out of her by her partner high-risk pregnancy, the hospital wrote a pleading letter to the government to say, I think you need to let her come back to New Zealand because she has no support, and she was Maori. And my favourite line of it was that the person, I don't know if it was the Zumba teacher one, had written, she has relationship issues, and she wants to come back and give birth safely in New Zealand. I suggest we decline her. And that was, again, signed off by two other people, that she had relationship issues. And where it gets interesting when you look at this. If it's not interesting already. (laughs) Yeah, the Takanga principles. Well, what's funny is that the person who signed off her um, banning her was Chris Bunny at MB, who subsequently got an award from the government for his excellent work, where he said that he really loves helping people, particularly Maori people. Um, And this woman, and just so we understand the relevance of that, if you are a, a wahine Maori and you're suffering domestic violence during your pregnancy, you are three times more likely to die or the baby die yeah, yeah. than a Pākehā. So he was cool with her having relationship issues and banning her. And then you think, again, that was never considered, which is now going to be very – and now you've got me thinking, reading this, of what my next court case is, is did you know that the word fenua means birth and it means land? Right. No, I didn't. So so actually giving birth on the land in New Zealand is actually a, an incredibly important part of, right. of the identity. Yeah, it's a right. This is what you do. That's why Fenua and birth. So when we think about it, when they're banning all of these women, I don't think anyone took any of this into account. It's so <laughs> far from what it should be. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a sociopathic sort of feel to that. It, it actually, it actually is, and the thing that you are saying is, is how do we get to this? Yeah, eight, uh, I would say eight of the ten people who were signing off all of the warrants on the baby ban um, and saying these most horrific things about, oh, you have a relationship problem if you're pregnant, getting beaten up. Eight of the ten of them were women, and I'm not saying that women should know more about childbirth. No, they should. I'd, they should. Well, sorry, we would like we to believe think- what we're told. 
they should. Right. Okay. They, okay. They should. But I would have liked to think that not a single one of them in the hundreds of emails ever said a thing like, oh, um, you know, the, some of the, I can't, I can't even say the name of the conditions, but the way that some of them described the medical conditions and they misspelled them, they They're didn't know how to say them. Is what you're, you're telling us. Yeah, but the point was is that if you can't say or spell the medical condition that the person has that a doctor says this could actually kill them, you should probably ask a doctor. And yeah. But not, none of the women said – it was like preeclampsia, where women in New Zealand die of that. It's a um, birth complication. And, uh, you know, again, you, 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 when I say that to people, they say, oh, I know my cousin had it or my wife had it, I, someone I work with, and said my wife almost died twice from it. And yet they were there telling people – Oh, the doctor said you may have it. That's not really satis- That's not really good enough for us. And so they just they 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 fob them off. And then the woman had it, and she almost died, and the baby almost died. Um, and they only let her husband come back to New Zealand to care for her after her eighteen-month-old kicked open the stitches from the that traumatic birth, yeah. Yeah. and she was basically in such agonizing pain that she was incapacitated. This is a, this is a bloody horror story. Mate. Then she was allowed back. Oh, look, and all of this is in OAAs. Every one of these emails from MB just saying, they, to, to really rub it in on her, when, when the doctor says that she could have preeclampsia because she did the last time, and again, you can die from it and it's a traumatic birth, the MB person wrote back, the doctor said you could have it and they even went to the effort of putting the word could in italics with oh, um yeah, little yeah. um inverted commas above it um and again not a doctor but whatever and look i mean I, this is the whole thing is I, I just don't want people to think that the pregnancy cases were women just you know having a great time sitting somewhere and wanting to yeah, come back trying to they, milk they the in, system for no. sympathy from you know their pregnancy you know yeah right it, it was they were we most of that. of the third i dealt with about 35 cases Jeez. and most of them were in truly horrific circumstances where where they were at extreme risk and i didn't see one iota of empathy or consideration for it it was um yeah, I said what I saw in writing, and, and I'm publishing these frequently now on my LinkedIn. It, it's it's sickening as a New Zealander to think that that someone would have thought this was acceptable, um, and, and they were, and then they ended up getting awards for it. Nick, um, I'm thinking on this program we've talked a lot about cases, and we've and it's come up every now and then, quite often. You know, why is everyone so heartless in this? And I'm just listening to that, and it just sounds like. It's like vertically integrated heartlessness from the top to the bottom. Can you believe what you're hearing? Yep. Oh. Yeah. No, I can. Be- I can believe what I'm hearing. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, well, I guess let me answer it in a different way. Um, if you had said to me, if you'd asked me that question pre-March 2020, do you think New Zealand would behave in this way, or New Zealand operatives, government operatives, etc., would behave in this way if this set of circumstances existed? I'd say no, not in a million years. It won't. It couldn't happen in this country. No, I don't believe that the system we have, and the people we have, and the democracy we have, and the, the you know the, the the legal system we have, and the rule of law we have. No, I don't think that this stuff would happen. Um, but what I've seen since March 2020 uh, is, you know, would, has turned my mind to the complete opposite. Yeah, and and so you know, and and sadly, it's shaken my faith in in the system that that I operate under in terms of my job every day. Judah, you must have, as you're sort of peeling back the layers, you must have been like almost falling. I mean, I don't want to be over over the top about this, but hearing it, 
you know, you kind of want to fall off your chair. You, It's hard to think that people could be that disconnected, that ignorant, and so secure in that ignorance, and, and yeah, kind of heartless to the things in life that should mean something, no matter what. Yeah, I, I think so. And and I'll tell you, when I read some of these emails, which unfortunately I do, and I'm, I'm going to have to again for some, some more litigation, um, there is, it, it, I've been in practice for 16 to 17 years, you know, and I read horrific crimes because I'm a criminal lawyer, but I don't think anything has affected me as much as reading about you know, having New Zealand citizens speaking to pregnant, vulnerable women in the way they did in those emails, um, because there, there is almost an element that you can pick up that the person writing them enjoyed twisting the knife. Yeah, and and there's and there's and there's, and there's hmm. yeah, and there was one case where the woman was in India, and the doctor in India had written saying, you know, they were going through a Delta wave and they had no health care, and they're like the hospital was just people, dead people everywhere, and the person in New Zealand saying. Oh well, you know, if you if you we don't consider giving birth to be a medical emergency under the under the um, MIQ rules, which was what the whole problem was, was that they only considered it a scheduled medical treatment, which was the requirement, because you don't know when you're going to have the baby. It's not yeah. scheduled, so that's why the babies were banned. Right. So they said if you had a C-section. And you booked it, that would be scheduled. And the woman said, I don't really want to have a C-section. No. And they said, if you want to give birth in New Zealand, then you're going to have to do that. And I was sitting there thinking, are you actually telling a woman in distress where there's dead people everywhere how she is allowed to give birth in New Zealand? And again, and this went back and forth with this sickening sort of cruelty to it. And what you have to remember is that this was not a health response because in the email when they wrote when when Charlotte Bellis blew up, they actually I think they're going to regret this mentioned in one email that they'd never bothered to ask the Ministry of Health for an opinion, even after the first seven judicial. I don't know why you'd, did. you'd put that down if you, no, if you didn't want they said, later. They said we never we never we never ask health anything. You, you've just had and and just to be clear, every major medical health board in New Zealand wrote open letters to Chris Hipkins and to the court saying this is actually going to kill women and babies. Um, and that was in October 2021. And um, four months later, it's like, oh, we didn't bother to ask someone with a qualification because it was a political response. And, mm. and I think that th- yeah. that's what we have to all just every time anyone wants to do the thing about MIQ and it kept us safe and all that. Look, it was a political response because if it was about keeping us safe, then the all blacks should have never been allowed to go and come back. The black caps should have never allowed to go and come back. DJs. And what we know for sure, Wiggles. 64 foreign DJs. They And they didn't just get MIQ beds. So the brigadier they, likes hip hop. Yeah. Well, that's what I, the way I describe it, it was, it was like the moral compass of our country was designed by a teenager on MDMA who likes dubstep. Wow. That's, mm. So why don't we why don't we um, just segue into that because of course we've talked a bit here about um, you know of course that the pregnant woman Charlotte Ballas but of course you did a lot of work also didn't you Tudor with the um, uh, missing missing Kiwis overseas I forget what the the group was called um, and then you know as you say the um, the Wiggles were allowed the DJs were allowed but ordinary Kiwis who wanted to return home from London uh, were not. You know, um, were they were they slightly different fact circumstances in the pregnant pregnant woman in terms of the legal issues, I suppose, as well. Um, 
Well, yeah, it was actually. And the, and the reason is, is the, so the difference between the pregnant people and, and other Kiwis, in my view is, is that you, you simply couldn't have stopped the other Kiwis coming back anyway. Um, but the reason that the pregnancy was different is because there is a United Nations convention on the right of a child. So there is an entirely separate and unique set of rights that apply to that unborn child and the moment that child is born than it does to anybody else. Um, so a critical part of that, of course, is that when that child is forced to be born overseas, they actually do not have full New Zealand citizenship. Ah, okay. And the government didn't care about that. And I, and you know, the other person who didn't care was the Commissioner for Children, who I thought I'd just write to and explain uh, and ask them what they thought about the breaches who was of the that? UN rights of a child. Or who is that or was that at the time? Um, I can't actually remember. Okay. I just look, yep. Sorry, I've got so many names in my head. So yep. I wrote to them and said, how is it possible it's not breaching the UN rights for child when you're banning these kids coming back? And I cited Section 8, which is you cannot deny a child part of their identity. And part of your identity is being a New Zealander by birth. And you think, first of all, it, so just so you understand, if you're born on New Zealand soil, you then have the ability to pass on citizenship to your children anytime, anywhere, with anyone. If you're born overseas, like all these thousands of kids um, who would have been, they actually don't have the ability to automatically pass on citizenship. And then we had people who even gave birth overseas who were what, what and that's called a citizen by descent, because it's like you're a descendant, you're not born, born on the land. And we actually have one case of a girl who was forced, to, so a woman who was forced to give birth in England, and now her baby needs a visa to come to New Zealand oh, because she was. For, I mean, it's just extraordinary. So, so haven't again, you? When, so just on that, haven't you proposed? I think I read somewhere um, you would only you would need um, you wouldn't even need an act of parliament to overturn this. You would oh, simply no. need one clause uh, in, in one piece of legislation. That would change all this in about three seconds, right? Um, so you know, it, so it does require legislative change mm. um, because. Um, so you're right; it does. It, it requires maybe three sections to be added into the Citizenship Act and into um, birth, deaths, and marriages. But the thing is, is when I raised all of this, um, and it and it was in the media in March, the the government said, "Oh, we had no idea about any of this," which again comes back to the point of. How would you think um, Dr. Blumfeld had medical advice, uh, had legal advice, when no one bothered to tell anybody that there would be an impact of forcing these babies to be born overseas? Hmm. So the so the thing is, the government then responded, and I just got their OAA last week. That basically, this was the previous well, the Labor government. They couldn't care less, um, and that if the and and the other person who couldn't care less was was the Children's Commissioner who just left, um, Judge Evers. Um, the Children's Commission office wrote back to me and said that they couldn't care less. They would, and I quote, see how I go. So in other words, they get paid about, what, seven or eight million bucks a year to look out for children. They just wanted to see how I go for free helping these women, and then they'd decide if they do something. Um, another example of of a, a ministry that should be shut down, um, hopefully, within the next week. Um but the point is, is that yeah. the, the government was clear that they would not help these people. And what the what the women could do would be to pay $250, write to the minister and beg if their child can have citizenship uh, was their solution. And I was like, okay, so you've just traumatized them. 
And now, and and then again, that's just all stuff that they do because they knew they're going to lose the election, I guess. And and the last thing they wanted to do was help anyone. Yeah, but um, if you're Doctor Bloomfield or Christopher Hipkins, and okay, people aren't telling you things, but you're not an idiot. You know when you're confident in doing things and when you're not. And to let that let that go is well, I I can't work out why you'd let that go. Yeah, and I, and I think the the point is is that if you're if you weren't getting advice at all, um, well, first of all, you probably should have sought it. Was the thing right? Like if if you said to yeah. any if you said if I said to you right now and I said, okay, Paul, look, um, I want you to ban these pregnant women coming back, or even in fact any citizen, but I want you to ensure that sixty four foreign DJs are prioritized to come back, and it's it's not just again prioritize them to come back they actually had to be granted critical purpose visas. <laughs> so they had to yeah. be considered to be critical to New Zealand in the same way a brain surgeon was or the person to make sure our cell phones work or whatever. That that was the thing. You would think you'd sit there and just think, it doesn't really feel right. WTF is what I'd think. Yeah, you, you would. And you would say, I want to have rock solid legal advice on this because I don't feel that it, in, in my conscience it's the right thing anyway. And I want to know it's legal, but it just appears that everyone just went into this, um, you know, obsession thing where it was like, we're keeping the country safe, you know, and therefore you just, you can make the most horrific, cruel, uh, so what was it? Not lawful because it was illegal, not fair because, you know, whatever, and, and an irrational decision. Um, yeah, again, I, I just don't know where... The, those no, DJs, yeah. Uh, how how could anyone think they, well, whatever the terminology used, critical anyway? Um, there's just no way you could ever find equivalence there. But obviously, someone, what someone wanted them there. There, there was an instruction, and who would that have come from? It must have come from high up, surely. Yeah. Look, I mean, we have to look at the examples um, where Jacinda Ardern was personally involved in essentially being the gatekeeper of the country. And and I think that there's never been a time that a single person had as much power as, as, as Jacinda did. And the reason for that is with the, with the Wiggles, um, they, they actually, you know, they had got the visas, the critical worker visas, but they didn't have MIQ spots. So I've got the OAA and have read all of this. And to be fair, MB had, was very clear to them. You don't have MIQ beds and we can't help you. You're out. Yeah, and yeah. multiple times. And the Wiggles humble bragged and explained, well, we make $50 million a year. You know, we're very important. You need to give us the beds. Mm, no. Yeah. And it was only when um, Jacinda um, intervened and said there, sh- there must be a pragmatic solution to this that the next email from the Wiggles is, well, you heard it, pragmatic solution, so give us the beds. So, they, so, so that was the whole point is that you, you could have this intervention. And then you think, well, how did the DJs get all of this? Now, I've actually, at the high court with the women, they were basically saying that there were senior decision makers who looked at the social, economic, and political value of who was allowed to come in. Oh, I see. So you see, these silly pregnant women, they don't have any social, political, or economic value. So they didn't get time to make the cut. They were hustling for favour, weren't they, in in facilitating those decisions? Oh, it, it had to be. Now, the good news is I've done an OIA 
um, which, I mean, it'll take a few weeks, but I, I'm really trying to drill down, first of all, on how those decisions were made at immigration to give to classify them as critical. And the second one is who decided which of the critical DJs. <laughs> shouldn't even, I can't even say that with a straight face. Yeah. I mean, which of the critical DJs would then get um, the special, because there was about, I don't know, 40-odd beds a month or something for, for critical DJs. Uh, and and entertainers, not just, yep. but right. not that. But yep. but again, someone had to have had a, a criteria. So when I wrote to MB and said, "Can you give me the OIA of how the economic assessment was made of these DJs to have the social, political, and economic privilege?" They wrote back and said, "We're denying your OIA request because that information doesn't exist." Oh, so it was never put on paper. No, so no one ever actually sat so down and said, oh, it was all phone calls and, and nod, nod, wink, wink. Kind yeah, of so, well, that's the whole thing is that the DJs, um, I, I'm, it doesn't appear to be any actual economic analysis that these DJs were were superiorly economic and socially and political well, no, better than they, anyone else. Of course they weren't. I, I used to be no, a DJ. of course not. I know what, the, I know what that's like. So um, it sounds like the whole MIQ system was a sham. It was a theatre. It was a performance art, was it? It, it was, look, at, I would say, to be fair, at the start in 2020, I could see it made sense. People could come into it, you know, and, and we didn't know what was going on um, for 2020. I think so. The problem is, though, is that um, when you got through to 2021, um, it was, it, it basically became a political tool. And I think the reason for that was that the, the thing that really gave the government its power was having an enemy. And that's, that's normal. That's political anything 101, right? You start a war or you have an enemy and you blame other people. And I think when the government realized they could basically make overseas New Zealanders the enemy, it that that was the whole power base. And oh, and if you look what happened sure. to Jacinda Ardern, within, within what um, the, the, the last time her approval rating was ever up was March 2022, and that was the day that MIQ finished, and she never recovered from it. Right, because you just you just had that ability to demonize. So the answer is, yeah, MIQ was a sham. It was from at least middle of 2021, um, horrifically expensive and and damaging to the country. And and so even when Ashley Blumfeld had said secretly, of course, in November 2021 that MIQ wasn't really required, I think it was still about 100 120 million dollars was still spent on it before it was decommissioned. Right. It's a fair and when we're, yeah, and and the point is, is when we're sitting there going, how much would it cost to pay all the senior doctors that went on strike last week? It's probably like what five million bucks a year, yeah. and we just blow one hundred and twenty on it to put ninety nine point nine percent healthy people in a prison hospital, not even a normal hospital. We blew half a billion on rat tests that weren't used. I mean, there's been money thrown mm-hmm. around all all over the place. Do you think there was any anyone on the take? I look. I, I'm not even. I don't even think it's that. I, I haven't. The I haven't seen anything um, cunning in all of the thousands of documents. All I've seen is that people of incredibly low intelligence were given power that is just extraordinary. That was it. Uh, so I, I'm. I'm not going to suggest there was anything other than yep. just okay. total incompetence and overwhelming ineptitude. Um, um, combined with this overwhelming sense of self-importance. Yeah, I think that, I think that's right. I think you know when you look back, we were all sold 
this um you know kind of story that that uh, we were all being saved here like that we, our lives were being saved and we should be grateful you know and um you know one of the most egregious things i can remember from a legal aspect is uh, you know those 1 p.m press conferences which obviously occurred daily and our derm would stand up there with, you know, Bloomfield and Hipkins and others, perhaps. And she literally would make law standing at the podium. And, and I remember a few times it wasn't much, it wasn't, you know, hugely important law, I suppose. But there was a case where I think there was somebody went swimming off a beach and it was, you know, um, um, held to be, I guess, or it was frowned upon because they got into trouble and someone had to, a lifesaver or someone on a jet ski had to rescue them, okay? And, of course, that the person, you know, in the water might have had COVID and therefore they are given to the person on the jet ski or something. So so, so Adun stood up on the podium and said, we're banning you from swimming on the beach, or, or basically, right? From tomorrow, you can't now swim in the beach kind of thing. And, and it, I look, I might not have the facts entirely correct, but I remember sitting there in my, you know, um, in the comfort of my home, locked down, looking at the TV saying, She's just making law restricting the freedom of New Zealanders from the podium of truth with no select committee, with no um, accountability to the to people, with no one providing any, with no parliamentary vote, with no governor general, you know, sort of signing it off, just passing a law. And this is now what we're doing, you know, um, for, and she sold it like for the want of the better good, I suppose. So I think I kind of agree with with Tudor that that's kind of people just thought that they were doing, you know, for the better good, and it didn't really matter what it took; it was for the better good. Um, I've talked to Winston a few times on this program, obviously um, about all sorts of things, but particularly about this inquiry that he's been talking about. Sounds like we bloody well need that all the way, right? Oh, look, a hundred percent, we need an inquiry because. It doesn't appear that any aspect of the, um, of, of you know, of, of the Bill of Rights was was respected or anybody's rights, and it's clear that the inquiry that was requested is is, is meaningless. It's going to cost at least ten million dollars. Um, I wrote to them and just said, "Hey, look, I have more information about the COVID response, particularly on the border, than any other private citizen in New Zealand. Would you like to talk to me? What do you think? I got any response? Of course, I didn't." They're not interested because it would, the hard questions that I would like to ask and need to be answered is, you know, where was the where was the safety um, for people in MIQ first of all, um, and the reason I say that is, and, and I mean I've got a personal interest in this because my girlfriend was in MIQ and she was abused. Um, by the defense force staff what do you mean abused um um, they well the the lady running it um decided that she didn't want my girlfriend to be allowed to go outside and speak to me at the fence line which was completely legal and and there was a two meter gap between the fences so you could be visited by family and friends cam commandant oh yeah she was yeah and 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 and, uh yeah too many too many similarities to a particular one on television as well um or the sergeant sorry in that show so the thing was yeah, that one. So the point was, there was a two meter gap between the the fence and and the MIQs all through the city. You could see people just like family, and you stand there and you wave to your family and all that. And she just unilaterally decided that this was not allowed, and she sent out and she sent out a directive, which was um, of course completely unauthorized, telling people it was a new law that they couldn't do it. 
And of course, there was no law. Well, these people just make stuff up. Oh, oh yeah. No, at least even in the OAA, it says um, someone senior had said this was unauthorized. So anyway, my girlfriend just called and said, hey, I'm just, just wondering like, what, what is the law? Because we don't want to break the law. That's the whole point, right? And she actually started threatening her and said, if you speak to that guy at the fence line, you will be prosecuted and said it multiple times. And if you get prosecuted, they can keep you in for another two weeks. Plus, it's oh, a criminal so like prosecution. Imprison you. Yeah, yeah. So she wanted to decide when you could go out. And again, and the point was is that when when she came out to see me, um, the police came and and said, actually, there is no law stopping. You're totally fine. But she um, she then sent out this goon who came to harass us the next time we were out there. And he told my girlfriend in front of me that he wished he had a gun like in Argentina because dictatorships get things done. And then he could basically tell her what to oh, do. Oh, my God. Oh, no, hang on, it gets better. And when we said, yeah, we're not in a dictatorship, he looked at my girlfriend. He said, when was the last time you were raped? When was the last time you were murdered? And you're complaining about what? In this very sarcastic voice. Wow. He then, oh, hang on, it gets even better. He then proceeded to walk around behind her um, when we tried to move to get away from him in this sort of weird walk with his pelvis out, um, like three, maybe about three meters behind her, like doing sort of like clown steps as we walked around. And and I, I mean, we, we later complained about that. And of course, it took, you know, a few months for them to write back and say, none of that ever happened. Um, but the only good thing was, is that they were too dumb to realize that because my, my girlfriend's quite smart, she'd actually taped the whole thing. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, lordy, so, lordy. Um, <laughs> lordy, lordy. But the point is, is that, again, you know, if you go to a women's prison in New Zealand, the complaint manual just for a women's prison is about 15 pages of if a woman is in danger or, or being threatened or harassed or something. Because unfortunately, when you put people in these situations, you know, of power over people, um, bad things happen, particularly to women, which is yep. what happened here. Yeah. Right. The sort of really creepy, rapey behavior is just disgusting. Um, and the thing was, was that, at MIQ, it was just the, the it was always oh we're trying to keep people safe, um, and in fact even the ombudsman um, ruled that um, it was actually okay to ask her when she was raped last because it was in context, and that if something hit I'm are you talking about up. Peter Boucher? Oh yeah, I'm, uh, this is all being published. Don't worry. Yeah, Peter Boucher. Peter Boucher also said that. Um, it was actually not something that it, nothing should be done about it anyway, because the problem was this, it was that the staff didn't want to work at MIQ in the first place, the defense force. So if they felt that their superiors would hold them accountable, like for this rapey guy, then they wouldn't want to go to work. And staffing was oh the priority. God, and I wrote back to Peter Boshi and said, no, no, the safety of New Zealanders and the MIQ was the priority, not the staffing problems. And again, and you're sitting there going, so in other words, when I mean, if they have MIQ again and you have a, a female friend, partner, daughter, whatever, and you let them go into that, you, you're an idiot and you're asking for it because it's clear that, it, it, like I said, every level of the COVID response, women came off way worse. But even right up now, it seems, to the chief ombudsman. Oh, he doesn't look, even get it. Okay. Oh, this is definitely being published. I mean, I, I just cannot even yeah. understand um, how you would think it was a good idea to write that. Um, mm. The Defence Force have written back and saying because the guy was 
um, didn't intend to offend anybody and was trying to build rapport. Boy, we picked the, um, the good ones to be in the military then, don't we? Hey, eh? yeah, great selection yeah, well, process that going on there. Well, well, the well, the, well, the thing is, is that the defence force um, should have just come back and said this is appalling behaviour and done something about it. But the problem they had was that they had already not done anything at the time. Right. So they thought if they didn't do anything about it later. And the extraordinarily concerning thing was, was that when I laid a complaint, so I laid the complaints and like I said, they, they just said that none of it ever happened because they, they didn't know it was all taped um, for her safety, right? So when, of course, I wrote back and said, well, I think I need to speak to someone very senior, the legal team at the Defence Force actually um, banned me from even laying a complaint. And uh, the Defence Force legal team put it in writing to me that I was um, – that they were not going to do anything about it and that no emails from me would be monitored on the address anymore. Oh, so that's so like have, just put your fingers in oh, your ears it's like, and it's la, like, la, 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 I can't hear what you're saying. It's like women don't want to hear about it. I had to write to Crown Law and ask them, Are, is the military allowed to ban you complaining about women being abused? Is that is that really legal? Is that a thing? Crown Law had to get involved and literally it must have been the palm face reaction from crown law and said actually no you're not allowed to ban complaints about women being abused um you know and, and you just think if, if you didn't have a boyfriend who was a lawyer you know who could pull all this together and be emailing crown law and saying are we seriously playing this game here of banning complaints where would you go and and, and the concerning thing is this i had multiple other women contact me once this was in the news oh so this, is, this was abused. a pattern of play that was happening yeah, the most the most common one, I think the pattern was where the defense force would just tell someone what to do. It tended to be women, and if they were ever sort of questioned it in any way, they would be threatened with what they called day zero. So that was where that they sounds would let's North say, Korean. It does. So let's say you'd been in MIQ for ten days and you're getting out in four, and the defense force guy just decides he doesn't like you and tells you what you can and can't do. If you say, uh, uh, "Why is that?" They could day zero you saying, oh, I think she had a bit of a runny nose, and then you're in for another 14 days. So it was really interesting the number of people who came to me that they'd been threatened with day zeroing, uh, mostly women, of course, um, and, and there was nothing ever done about it. And, and again, now it's approved by the ombudsman, all of this conduct. Um, the military have said that they 100% approve of this guy going around asking her when she got raped last. Um, and again, so you just think, there wasn't a single person who actually has the safety of women um, at heart. It's extraordinary. Can you tell us about, I think I read this on um, one of your LinkedIn um, posts, um, Tudor. I think you were writing to a government department, um, might have been immigration or MBIE or somebody, and one of the responses you got, uh, amazingly, it was an internal response, I think, amongst the government department was, can't we stop this guy from taking legal action? How do we stop this guy from, like, you know, enforcing the legal rights? And what, what can we do about it? In other words, they were just concerned that they were going to be subject to scrutiny through the legal um, processes, and they didn't want it to happen. Yeah, that that is um, that was an incredible email. So that was after um, we'd sued for two um, husbands to get back to New Zealand for the births. Um, 
And then I had this was the one who was going to be forced to have a medical procedure or medical invasion uh, uh, thing done to her, which would, again could have permanently uh, blinded the baby um, and been and, and been imprisoned as well in the country. And I basically said, "Well, we're going straight to court, you know, if you don't let her in, because they'd already um, rejected her once." Um, and that was an internal email from, it might have been about, number, again, we're talking about like the third or fourth highest ranked person at MB who said, can we give some thought to how we can stop Mr. Klee using the judicial process um, in this way? Mm-hmm, and, and you're thinking, so heaven forbid, there's a legal way that you can actually force a government department to say, we think that we should ban this pregnant woman, New Zealand citizen woman, I keep saying over and over again. Um, from giving birth safely here because we've got summer concerts, you know, and, and the I mean, it's just, yeah, but, but again, we, we, these people put these things on their emails with their name on them. And I think I published the name of the person as well. Yeah. You've got a, a government, a government um, public servant literally mm-hmm. actually saying, how can we stop this person from, um, uh, you know, protecting his or her legal rights. Right. That's exactly how, how, what they were saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly what they were saying. Yeah. And uh, put some thought the, to it. Like they were doing, a, 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 you know, an ask around yeah, at right. the office. Let's what have we a just... whiteboard and put balloons up there. and have a meeting. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amazing. that indicates um, that that's not very bright thinking, is it? Because, uh, um, y- you know, people can find out. We know. So um, they didn't think that one through. Too much. We're coming up on time, and uh, I think we probably need a break because it's so bloody shocking hearing this. Um, There's more that you've been involved in, Tudor. Um, I'm going to suggest that when we get a a moment in, you know, not too far away, that maybe you can come back on and we can kind of talk about some of the other stuff that we haven't had time to talk about today. But that was was stunning stuff to hear, i got to say. It's fascinating. I had no idea. It was at that level. I sort of suspected that things weren't right and there were dumb people, and all, but I had no idea it was at that level. It's just stunning to hear. And I'm sure our audience is thinking, my golly, they're gasping right now. Yeah, and, and this is the problem was that it was, you know, I didn't want to get involved in any of this. Um, and then I got dragged into it and you just realized that it was at every single level was this weird visceral hatred of women or just abuse of them and, and letting it go. Um, by women too, the, right? By women. Oh, by women. Yeah. The, the, the lady at the MIQ was a woman. And I mean, but it was just, it was just weird that, that like I said, it, if the, the thing is, I'll just wrap up on this point yep. is that when human rights are taken away, the first people to lose them are the last people to have got them. Right. Gotcha. And, and that's why you just saw, Pregnant women cut, you saw this cut, and the last people who lost any rights are going to be, you know, your sports stars, your all blacks. I mean, because since, you know, Roman times, the sports the stars have always, yeah, the, the sports on stars the pedestal. are yeah. on the pedestal. Yeah, yeah. So they were allowed to go and come back and make money and all fine. And same with all the male DJs. But it, it's just the women were at the, definitely at the bottom of the pecking order at, at everything from getting to MIQ, being in MIQ. Um, giving birth in New Zealand, I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't matter. And so I, I just think that we need a reckoning about um, calling ourselves a feminist-type country because we're not. We're, no. we're vicious to women. Yeah. And, and the thing with all of this is, you know, um, you go back right to um, 
I forget the name of that. Uh, is it Borodale, the barrister who who took the case? Yes. Initially, yeah. the court, the first nine days of lockdown were illegal. Murray Bolton, MIQ, you know, his case was illegal. We've had so many mandate cases now that, you know, are unlawful. We've now got the fluoride case. So we've got a whole lot of government actions and directive that are found to be unlawful. And, you know, not only has there really been no remedy, and the Bill of Rights doesn't really, apart from Bajan's situation, we won't go into that, Paul, but doesn't really provide a remedy. Just The courts just give kind of a, a, a direction. Yes, yes, there's a breach here. You naughty people don't do it again. Um, we must kind of remember what's happened and make sure it never, ever, ever happens again, right? And so maybe, you know, this is a lesson learned for the country that, you know, we've got, the, we've got these precedents here now. Um, it must never, ever, never, ever happen again. I don't know what your view on that, Tudor, is, but... um... I I think, well, the the reality is, I think I might be the only person held accountable so far in the entire COVID response. Um, Unfortunately, I got fined by the Law Society for using too colourful language about what I thought about uh, what happened to my girlfriend at MIQ when having some weird rapey guy walking around behind her. Um, So I think I'm actually the only person who's actually been sanctioned in any way for anything to do with COVID in the whole country. Um, and, and that's the whole point. So I don't think anyone's learned a lesson. All of mm. the people involved in all of this horrific behavior I've just told you, they've all just, they've all fallen forwards. They're all in senior positions at other government departments, milking out $300,000 a year for doing basically nothing. So no, I, I don't think anything's no. been learned. And, and sadly, and I've got to say this, so sadly, uh, that I think, um, and probably, hopefully, I think you'll agree with me, Tudor, that I think our profession needs to look at itself as well in a huge way um, about, you know, some of the um, sitting back and accepting that the legal profession did during the whole couple of years that this went on without doing the job that it actually has over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years is meant to ha- have done and, and has done for the for the vulnerable that you've just talked about. You know, um, I, I really think apart from people like yourself, obviously, Tudor, uh, but by and large, uh, that we, by and large, the legal profession just folded like blamanges, you know, and it was not good to see. All right. Um, that was a really interesting legal hub, what can I say? And Tudor, if you don't mind, we'll get you back some point not too far away because I know there's a bit more to talk about. But one thing's for sure, we need that inquiry and it needs to go all the way. That's really what, just line extending what you were saying there, uh, Nick, you know, that um, you, you can't let this lie where it is, can you? No, no, definitely not. Well, look, I, right. I can oh. just indicate, Paul, sure. I'll, um, yeah, I've got some, I, I, I will have some news um, you know, I am continuing to do something about all of this, not just complaining about it. So, uh, look, I, it's a real honor to be on your show, and I'd love to come back and give you an update um, when uh, when we've got some news. Maybe in a few, two, three weeks. Let's see how we go. But uh, Tudor Clee, lawyer, thank you for uh, joining our legal hub. It was really great having you. Fantastic insight and uh, so much to go away and think about. And, Nick, good to see you again. Uh, and you thanks too, Paul, for yeah for getting us across at this early stage anyway, that decision uh, re-fluoride. And we'll do it all again in about a week's time. Yeah, good one. Okay, have a good day, everybody. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Tudor. Thanks. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.